Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back to the Neurological System Podcast. Now, before we talk, uh, let James McGraw in on here. I want to mention some neurological diseases or that I know were on the NCLEX. So let me just talk and uh, tell you what I know to be on the NCLEX. And then we'll let uh, James McGraw in here. So let's go to my nervous system and see what I have here. Okay. On my nervous system board, I have uh, Huntington disease. I think I mentioned what Huntington disease is, but I'll, I'll say it again, because if I if I mentioned it once and mentioned it again, then it must be on the NCLEX for sure. Now, so Huntington disease is a uh, inherited condition, and basically it's the body's inability to get rid of the toxins from the body through the liver. And over time, people have what is known, Huntington disease is a form of, de- of dementia. Uh, the, the basal ganglia region of the brain is affected. And what are the symptoms of Huntington disease? The symptoms of Huntington disease are several. Uh, let me give you some signs and symptoms because as nurses, we, um, pay attention to the signs and symptoms so that we can come up with a care plan. Uh, many describe the symptoms of Huntington disease as having Lou Gehrig's disease or Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's simultaneously. The person can no longer care for themselves as the disease progresses. Symptoms usually appear between the ages of 30 and 50 and worsen over a 10 to 25 year period. So you can imagine this person cannot take care of their children. That's what the question was about on the NCLEX. Uh, Symptoms include personality changes, mood swings, depression, forgetfulness, impaired judgment, unsteady gait, involuntary involuntary movements, slurred speech, difficulty in swallowing, and significant weight loss. Since I talked about Huntington's disease before, there are different stages of Huntington's disease. So let me go back and talk about those stages again. And again, the stages of Huntington disease is what's important. In the early stage, we have losing balance, lacking coordination, trouble swallowing, involuntary movements. As the person goes on, more symptoms develop, such as depression, mood changes, difficulty reasoning, and and inability. In the middle stage, the person ends up getting the shakes, uh, more difficult in performing normal activities, further loss of control over movements, and now they're getting slurred speech. And in the latent phase of Huntington disease, uh, they become dependent on others for their care, their motor control worsens, uh, they struggle to sleep, chew, eat, and walk, and they are at higher risk for choking, falling, and rapid weight loss at this point. Uh, again, that's Huntington disease, and the question was about not being able to take care of a child. 
another um, um, disease that was on the NCLEX that we don't normally study that I have here is Morfan syndrome. M-A-R-F-A-N, Morfan syndrome. And this is a unique syndrome in that the person, their extremities grow too large to, too large for them. Let me read. Uh, knowing the signs of Morfan syndrome can save lives. People are born with Morfan syndrome and related disorders, but they may not notice any features until later in life. However, features of Morfan syndrome and related disorders can appear at any age. Some people may have features at birth as young children or as young adults. So here's your signs and symptoms. They have long arms and legs and fingers, too long for their body's stature. Uh, they're, they have a tall, thin body type. They may have a curved spine. They have, uh, some of them, their chest sinks in or it could stick out. They have flexible joints. They have flat feet, crowded teeth, or, and or stretch marks on the skin that are not related to weight loss or gain. So that is the signs and symptoms of Morfan syndrome. Again, there's no way to treat this, uh, no way to cure this, but you just um, treat the signs and symptoms. Okay, now let's go back to the um, uh, the neurology system already in progress with this lecture with uh, James McGraw. Could you give me a brief overview of the neurologic system's structure and functions? Well, the basic building block for the central nervous or for the entire nervous system is neurons. Those are nerve cells and they have some unique characteristics. And those two are that they are excitable, which means they can generate an impulse and that they have conductivity. They can conduct an impulse generated elsewhere. While we could talk for a long time about neurons, the, the key pieces of them are, there are dendrites, which are short processes which come from the cell body and are basically intake for impulses. Then there's an axon on, on most neurons, which is usually a long process that extends away from the cell body uh, and is for the output of impulses. Uh, the axon may be myelinated to increase nerve conduction speed, or in some types of nerves, is not myelinated. It's important to remember that nerve cells don't regenerate if they're killed. Now, if they're injured, they'll try to rebuild, but if they're killed, they're gone. Nothing we don't grow another neuron to replace the one that was killed. Now, between neurons, we have synapses. The synapses are the connections between the neurons. There's a tiny gap or cleft between neurons. And, and the stimulus of one cell causes the release of neurotransmitters that cross this gap to stimulate the adjacent neuron. Exam examples are things such of neurotransmitters are things such as acetylcholine, norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, and histamine. Another example of a neurotransmitter is an endorphin. Now, the spinal cord... Uh, is a nerve bundle that connects the brain to the sensory and motor neurons. It has ascending tracts, which are largely sensory, and it has descending tracts, which are things such as the motor tracts and the pyramidal tracts, which aren't really motor, they're like motor coordination. Um, excuse me, the pyramidal tracts are for deliberate movement. It is the extrapyramidal tracts, which are for coordination and smoothing of movement. Made a little mistake there. Motor tracts uh, are the pyramidal tracts, and the extrapyramidal tracts are the coordination. Now, the spinal cord is not merely a conduit. It, it also does a little bit of uh, some of the work of the nervous system in that some impulses go to the cord and there's a, an immediate reflex and a motor impulse that comes back. Uh, for example, if you were to thump my patellar tendon with a rubber hammer, the stretch impulses would be transmitted to my spinal column and in my spinal column, there would be a reflex arc that would immediately send motor impulses to my quadriceps 
to extend my leg uh, without stimulating my brain. In addition, speaking of the brain, the brain is incredibly complex, as you know, and can be divided many different ways. For our purposes, we'll discuss the cerebrum, the main, big, top part of the brain, which has left and right hemispheres, which are connected, um, and has frontal, temporal, and parietal and occipital lobes, and is responsible for complex activities such as motor activity, cognitive functioning, language, memory. Below that is the brainstem, the home of the reticular activating system, which is responsible for wakeness, and our body's centers for respiration, uh, regulation of vascular size, uh, vascular tone, and cardiac function, and centers for those autonomic things like sneezing and coughing and hiccuping and vomiting and sucking and swallowing. Then there's the cerebellum, that, that bulb that's behind the brainstem but below the corta, the cerebrum. And it's largely responsible for coordinating voluntary movement and maintaining trunk stability in movement. In addition to the central nervous system, there's the peripheral nervous system, which is composed of the spinal nerves, many of which are, uh, the spinal nerves are, are combined motor and sensory nerves, which bring impulses to and from the spinal cord from the body's tissues. The cranial nerves are nerves that have their cell bodies inside the skull and their axons extend outside the skull to effector organs. There are 12 pairs of cranial nerves. Some of them are motor only, some are sensory only, some are both. A way to remember them is on old Olympus towering tops a Frank and German viewed some hops. Later on in this tape we'll go through the details of the cranial nerves. The autonomic nervous system is another part of the peripheral nervous system and includes the involuntary function, functions of the cardiac muscle, the smooth muscles, and the glands. The autonomic nervous system also in includes the sympathetic fight or flight system and the parasympathetic feed and breed system. I know that lumbar puncture is used to diagnose some neuro conditions. What is my role as nurse in this procedure? Well, you're correct. The lumbar puncture allows the collection of cerebral spinal fluid for analysis. It's often done right in the patient's room. It's our job to have the patient lie on their side with their back near the edge of the bed. It's our job to assist the patient to flex their spine. They need to bring their knees up and their head down. A local anesthetic will be infiltrated into the space and the needle will be inserted via the L3, L4 interspace, which is a safe place to put it, put it since the spinal cord terminates at approximately L1, L2. Now, after the procedure, it's controversial whether the bed should be flat or we should allow the patient's head up. Most people propose keeping the, flat, the head of the bed flat in the belief that upright will lead to a leak of CSF and cause a spinal headache. That position for the patient seems uncomfortable. Why do we bend them forward like that? Well, bending them forward before the needle is inserted uh, creates a larger gap between the posterior edges of the vertebral bodies, um, which makes it easier to get the needle into the space where it's uh, being aimed. What's the difference between CT and MRI? Well, they're both very expensive, high-technology uh, diagnostic procedures. Uh, CT is a computerized tomography. Uh, the x-rays are taken while the uh, x-ray tube and in the ray, the x-ray detector move around the patient in a circle. The x-ray tube on one side and the detector on the other side spinning around the patient. The data is analyzed by computer, which reconstructs the image. The images are usually a, uh, appears a cross-sectional slice of the body. Um, they can be reconstructed into mock three-dimensional images. Uh, CT can use contrast media, which is iodine-based, to en enhance the contrast of some things, uh, uh, such as tumors, or you can place contrast into, into an organ to see where it is. MRI is magnetic resonance imaging which uses radio frequency impulses to orient the protons in the hydrogen ions, excuse me, in hydrogen atoms. And as you may know, hydrogen atoms are widespread throughout the body. When the impulse is over, the protons return to the original position. And as they do, they emit a magnetic field. The magnetic field is recorded and processed to show a slice-like picture of the body. We may use contrast-enhancing agents during this process similar in function to iodine agents, but different in composition. Um, MRI gives a superior resolution of soft tissues than does computerized tomography. In both, the patient lies within a circular ring on a table 
that moves through the hole in the ring. Uh, it's important to teach the patient that they'll be in a room inside a big machine. Uh, they need to lie still, the table moves slowly. If they're getting a contrast medium that contains iodine, it's important to ask about that, that if they have an allergy to that agent. And if they're in an MRI, it's important to ask about implanted metal devices. The MRI will attempt to move some metals which may injure the patient. Okay, right here I want to stop before he goes any further. He made reference to the cranial nerves, but then he said, uh, I'm going to talk later about them. When you talk later about something, you forget to talk about it at all. Um, so I'll just do a quick review of the cranial nerves. Olfactory nerve is for what? Smell. Good. First I'll go over what the nerves are for and then how to test them real quick. So we said, on old Olympus towering tops, a Frank and German viewed some hops. Okay, great. But how are you going to remember them? I don't know. Uh, I remember the little saying, but I don't remember the nerves. This <laughs> is so, how. Uh, the first nerve is the olfactory nerve, which is its sense of smell. The second nerve is the optic nerve, which is in charge of vision. Uh, the third nerve is the ocular motor nerve, which functions is the eye movement or the pupil constriction. Then we have the trochlear nerve. Nerve number four is the trochlear nerve, again responsible for eye movement. Uh, number five is the trigeminal nerve. This is the somatosensory information, such as touch, pain, from the face all the way around the head, and it's in charge for the muscles for chewing. The nerves also become for, uh, important for beauticians. Uh, beauticians have to know the, the uh, 12 cranial nerves. Then you have the abducens nerve, again, eye movement. A lot of nerves here that are in charge for, of eye movement, huh? Then you have number seven, which is the facial nerve. Again, it's, uh, it's in charge of taste. The anterior two-thirds of the tongue uh, has to do with taste of the facial nerve. The somatosensory information from the ear, it controls muscles used in facial expression. Nerve number eight is the vestibular cochlear nerve, which is in charge of hearing or balance. We have nerve number nine, glossopharyngeal nerve. Taste is the posterior one-third of the tongue. The somatosensory information from the tongue, the nasals, the pharynx, controls some of the muscles used in swallowing. Nerve number 10 is the vagus nerve. This is a sensory motor and automatic functions of the viscera. The viscera in this case being the glands, uh, the digestion, and the heart rate. Uh, nerve number nine, sorry, nerve number 11 is the spinal accessory nerve which controls muscles used in the head and hops. A Frank and German viewed some hops. Hypoglyceal nerve controls the tongue and the muscles of the tongue. Now, how do we test for our different nerves? The olfactory nerve gathers some items with a distinct smell and have the person smell it, like coffee maybe, lemon, chocolate, things that have a distinct smell, and just simply have the person smell it. The olfactory nerve, you test this by the Snellen eye chart. You know, can they see the eye charts? As easy as that. The ocular motor nerve, nerve number three, uh, four, and six. The abducens nerve. So nerve number three is the ocular motor nerve. The trochlear nerve is number four, and abducens nerve is number six. These three nerves control eye movement and eye pupil diameter. 
hold up a finger in front of the client and tell your client to hold his or her head still and follow your finger. Then move your finger up and down, right and left. Do your partner's eye, does your client's eye follow your finger? If they're able to do that, <coughs> then check the pop popular response. Look at the diameter of your client's eye in dim light and also in bright light. Check for the differences in sizes of the right and left pupil as the pupil constricts. Okay, nerve number five, the trigeminal nerve. How do you test this? Well, this nerve has both sensory and motor functions. To test the motor part of the nerve, tell your partner to close his or her jaw as if he was biting down on a piece of gum or a stick or a pencil, you know, just an imaginary. Um, to test the sensory part of the trigeminal nerve, lightly touch various parts of your client's face with a piece of cotton or a blunt object and see if they can feel it. Be careful not to touch your client's eyes. Although much of the mouth and teeth are are inverted by the tri trigeminal nerve, don't put anything in your client's mouth. You wanna test the facial nerve, nerve number seven, the motor part of the face facial nerve can be tested by asking your client to smile or to frown or to make any other face you feel you want your client to make. <laughs> the sensory part of the facial nerve is responsible for taste on the front part of the tongue, the front two-thirds part of the tongue. Uh, you could try a few drops of sweet or salty water on the part of the tongue and see if your client can taste it. Vestibular, oh sorry, vestibular cock, vestibular cochlear nerve. Although vestibular cochlear nerve is responsible for hearing imbalance, we will only test the hearing part of the nerve. Have your client close his or her eye and determine the distance at which he or she can hear the ticking of a clock or a stopwatch. The glossopharyngeal nerve, nerve number nine, or the, and the vagus nerve, nerve number 10. You can test this by having your partner drink some water and observe the swallowing reflex. As the glossopharyngeal nerve is responsible for taste on the back of the tongue, you could try a few drops of salty water and see if the client can taste it. The spinal accessory nerve, this is to test the strength of the muscles used in head movement. Put your hands on the side of your client's head, both sides. Tell your partner to move his or her he head from side to side. Apply light pressure when the head is moved. That's how you can test the muscles of the strength of the head muscles. And the hypoglossal nerve, nerve number eight. Have your partner stick his or her tongue out and move it from side to side. So these are all 12 of the nerves and these are how to test the nerves. Now let's get back to the program, already in progress. As I said, James mentioned it, but I didn't want him to get too far away from the subject matter. What is intracranial pressure? Intracranial pressure is the pressure exerted by the cerebral spinal fluid on the inside of the skull and the outside of the brain and the spinal cord. There are three major components of intracellular volume. There's the brain tissue itself, the blood inside the brain, and the cerebral spinal fluid. If any of the three increase in volume, the ICP will go up, unless one, of, one or more of the others decreases in volume to compensate. 
compensation has its limits, and once reached, intracranial pressure goes up. Now, the hazard of increased intracranial pressure is that if the pressure is high enough, it can prevent the perfusion of blood into the brain tissue. And if the pressure is high enough long enough, the brain will squeeze downward to escape the pressure, and the person's brain will herniate, leading almost certainly to death. What are the signs of rising intracranial pressure? Well, that's an excellent question because that is the critical thing the nurse needs to know. If you're dealing with patients who have intracranial problems and you know nothing else, simply knowing the signs of intracranial pressure will save many lives. The early signs of rising intracranial pressure are restlessness, diminished level of consciousness, diminished alertness, disorientation, garbled speech, headache, vomiting, and a decrease in motor function, weakness. The late signs of increased intracranial pressure are widening pulse pressure, pulse pressure being the difference between the diastolic and systolic pressures, bradycardia, and posturing. By posturing, I mean either decerebrate posturing or decorticate posturing, wherein when stimulated, the patient will extend their legs and either flex, extend their arms to their sides, as in decerebrate posturing, or flex their arms in front of their chest in decorticate posturing. And of course, Dilated pupils are a late and ominous sign of increased intracranial pressure. I cared for a patient who fell off a horse six weeks before he was admitted. On the day that he fell, he had normal physical examination in the emergency department and was sent home. When admitted, he had a diminished level of consciousness and a subdural hematoma was suspected. I can appreciate your wondering about that case. A subdural hematoma is blood between the dura and the brain. This bleeding will become an expanding mass which will compress the brain and raise the intracranial pressure. What's interesting is it can present several different ways. It can present as the acute injury, where within 48 hours it manifests after the incident. It can be the subacute, where there's an onset between 48 hours and two weeks from the injury. Or there can be the chronic, where the onset is more than two weeks after the injury. Now, the acute form is highly lethal and frequently causes profound neurologic disability in survivors. It's one of the leading causes of death following uh, trauma or motor vehicle collisions or motorcycle injuries, particularly without helmets. It kills a lot of people. The subacute form may present with an initial loss of consciousness. They may have recovery and a gradual deterioration days later from a slow venous leak. Now, in the acute form, they tend to be unconscious from the outset, or they're stu they're, they have a diminished level of consciousness and it gets worse. But notice in the subacute, they may actually get better before they get worse. Now, in the chronic, it's most likely to be found amongst the aged population or in alcoholics, and may manifest after a quite minor trauma. For example, President Ronald Reagan tripped on the White House steps and did not strike his head yet he had to have the subdural hematoma drained weeks later after he had a chronic accumulation of fluid. Now, one of the things that's interesting is we've talked a lot about blood between the dura and the brain, but in the acute form, it is not at all uncommon for the patient to have, in addition to the clot, a, a bruise of the brain. They hit their head so hard that not only did they tear the blood vessels that bridge between the dura and the brain, their, ve their veins, but they also bruise the brain, so that even if you go in and do surgery and pull the clot out, the patient has a profound injury from this brain bruise. You had surgery for burr holes. What are they, and what is the proper nursing care? Brings a rather bizarre image to mind, doesn't it? Drilling holes in someone's skull. Actually, burr holes are simply holes drilled in the skull with a short drill, which is called a burr. Uh, the fluid of the hematoma can then be removed through the holes to decompress the brain. Um, the holes can be converted to a craniotomy by connecting the holes with saw cuts and lifting the loose piece of skull free. Uh, following the surgery, we need to be wary to prevent increased intracranial pressure. We need to elevate the head of the bed uh, following an acute subdural hematoma. This gets kind of confusing, but for the subacute and the chronic uh, subdural, sometimes we leave the head of the bed flat because the swelling is less. Um, and keeping them flat prevents re-bleeding. But for the acute patient, we keep the head of the bed elevated. We do frequent neurochecks at least one hour, every hour immediately post-op. 
we assess their level of consciousness, we assess their motor capacity, not just can they move, but how well can they move, are they strong bilaterally, are the, is the foot strength equal, is the arm strength equal. We look at pupillary reaction. Some nurses don't know how to do that properly. We look at one eye at a time and we close or cover the other eye. We use a bright light in a dim room and we record pupillary size both before and after the light and we record the briskness with which the pupils respond. We record the vital signs, especially respiratory rate and depth. Diminished respiratory rate and depth or extremely high respiratory rate and depth are not uncommon consequences of, in, of a, an intracranial injury. We measure and record the intracranial pressure if an intracranial pressure monitor is in place. We keep the head midline uh, and we avoid hip and neck flexion. Both of these things will increase the intracranial pressure. Simply turning the head to the shoulder can have a profound effect on the pressure. We prevent constipation to prevent the patient having a valsalva uh, where the patient grunts against the closed glottis to try to move their bowels. We avoid unnecessary coughing. We avoid pain control with drugs that cloud the level of consciousness, such as morphine. Commonly, codeine is used. And if the patient is on a ventilator, we anticipate the need to hyperventilate the patient in order to lower the carbon dioxide, which will lower the intracranial pressure. With respiratory care, we avoid stimulating coughing, and so we are very careful with our suctioning. What is the Glasgow Coma Scale? Glasgow Coma Scale is a tool for assessing the level of consciousness. It's highly valid and reliable. It's one of the few physical assessment things that was developed out of genuine research, um, and they proved that it was highly valid and reliable. We assess three things in the Glasgow Coma Scale. Not only is it valid and reliable, it's real easy. Um, we assess best eye-opening response, best verbal response, and best motor response. Then we assign a score to each of them, sum the scores, and that is the Glasgow Coma Scale. On eye-opening, if the patient opens their eyes spontaneously, they get four points. If they open their eyes only to voice, they get three points. If they open their eyes only to pain, they get two points. If there's no eye-opening to any stimulus, they get one point. And if, if we can't test it because of something such as the eyes being swollen shut, we record a U in that column. For verbal response, if the patient's oriented, knows where they are and why they're there and when it is, they get five points. If they're confused, they get four points. If they're using words inappropriately, they get just three points. If they can't even form words and are making incomprehensible sounds, they get two points. If they're making no sounds at all, even with a painful stimulus, they get one point. And if we can't test it because, let us say, they're intubated, we record a U for that value. For motor response, if the patient follows commands, they get a six. If they localize pain, they get a five, and localizing is reaching to the thing that's being hurt. If they flex withdrawal, in other words, they try to get away from pain by flexing their extremities, they get four points. If they have abnormal flexion or decorticate posturing, they get three points. Abnormal extension or decerebrate posturing, they get two points. And if there's no movement to pain, they get one point. If it's untestable, such as the patient's been given neuromuscular blocking drugs, they get no, a, a U recorded. It's important to notice that the lowest possible score is not a zero. The lowest possible score is a three. Why do patients with head injuries sometimes develop high temperatures and high urine output? Well, we have to remember that both temperature and urine output are heavily influenced by function of the brain. Um, the hypothalamus controls the temperature. If it is injured, the temp may go way up or way down out of control. Of course, with someone with a head injury, we first need to think if they're febrile, what else could be causing it? Could the patient have a UTI, a urinary tract infection, or could they have pneumonia? If the patient has a high urine output, we need to bear in mind that the pituitary stores and releases antidiuretic hormone. Without antidiuretic hormone, the kidneys are unable to recover water well. Thus, if the pituitary is injured or removed, there's no antidiuretic hormone available. If there's no antidiuretic anti hormone, there will be life-threatening fluid losses leading to shock. What kinds of symptoms can a patient with a brain tumor have? Well, there's a variety of symptoms which are limited only by the variety of functions of the brain. The symptoms are related to the functions of the affected region of the brain. They can have decreased motor strength or control, decreased hearing, 
decreased vision, decreased speech, decreased behavior, they get behavioral changes, decreased mental acuity. They, many people with uh, tumors have as their first presenting symptom uh, a seizure. Uh, my father had a brain tumor which presented in the very, very beginning as none of these, but because the tumor was located in the mathematics area, my father was having trouble dialing telephone numbers. He couldn't process the numbers well. So whatever the brain does can be a malfunction uh, and present as the symptom of a brain tumor. Uh, the most common ones are probably the decreased motor strength and control, decreased hearing and vision, or a seizure. It's uncommon for us to, to catch quickly that the behavioral changes are due to a tumor, if that's the case. How is brain tumor treated? Well, brain, the goals of treatment for brain tumor are identifying the tumor type and location, because that will have a tremendous influence on how we manage it. Um, removing or decreasing the tumor mass, the actual size of the tumor. And the prevention and management of increased intracranial pressure. Now, surgery, if it can work, is ideal because it removes the mass, and the mass is the problem. Even benign tumors can be fatal in the brain due to the mass of the tumor squeezing the brain. That's an important thing to remember. Just because a tumor is benign, which means it doesn't metastasize and is not in invasive, does not mean it's not a big problem. In the brain, all tumors can be a problem from their size alone. Location is critical when talking about surgery. If the tumor is superficial and not invasive, it's much more easily removed. There's some tumors that lie out that are tumors of the dura. And uh, we remove a piece of the skull, take the tumor out, put the piece of skull back, and don't have to damage the brain at all. If, however, the tumor is deep or invasive, or it is more difficult to remove. Because remember, we have to damage things that are okay in order to get to the things that aren't okay. Um, if the tumor's worse, we may actually have to create, if, it's, if the tumor's deep, we may have to create more damage getting to it than the tumor itself is causing. Another option for these patients is radiation, uh, which can lengthen survival by redu reducing the recurrence of tumors. We can use external beam radiation, where the source of the radiation is outside the body. And with that sort of radiation, there are significant skin and fatigue problems. Um, which can complicate the patient's care just at the time we'd like the patient to be doing, let's say, physical therapy for a, a weak limb. We blast them with radiation and make them so tired that they just can't keep up with, let us say, that physical therapy. Another option is the internal placement of radiation into the brain. An example is the placement of a radioactive agent within the tumor bed during sur surgery. Chemotherapy is an option for brain tumors. Fortunately, most malignant brain tumors disrupt the blood-brain barrier and allow the chemotherapy agent into the brain tissues. There's supportive therapy also, um, because almost all of these tumors have some swelling around them. Uh, and we can use steroids to shrink the swelling, although not have an effect on the tumor itself. These steroids' effect can be dramatic. Unfortunately, as with all steroids, the side effects can be serious. What care is appropriate for the person who has had a craniotomy? Okay, NCLEX alert. As long as we're talking about care, it's important to talk about bed positioning. This was on the NCLEX, okay? These people, any brain injury, any head injury actually, I should say it all, uh, these people have to be raised, the head of the bed has to be elevated, at least 45 degrees, okay? So don't fall for that head of the bed elevated 30 degrees. That's not enough, so that would be a wrong answer. Um, anyone with a head injury needs to be in a quiet, uh, darker place, right? So that the lights need to be off in their room, uh, the TV needs to be off. When we go into their room, they need to talk you need to talk quietly to them. This is anybody with a head injury, and this is an NCLEX alert. Okay, this was obviously on the NCLEX. So, let's go back to James's response to Catherine's question. Well, it's essentially the same as the care for the evacuation of the subdural hematoma. Remember that any surgery into the skull is a craniotomy. The positioning can vary on the type of surgery that's been 
performed. If this tumor is supratentorial, above the tentorium, which is that piece of dura that separates the cerebellum from the cerebrum, usually we'll put the head of the bed up th at least 30 degrees, and this is the most common site of tumors in adults. If the tumor is infratentorial, below the, the tentorium, we typically place the patient with the head of the bed flat with the patient lying on their side to prevent the brain from above the tentorium from herniating due to the lack of support from below. This is the most common sort of situation we find in children who've had a craniotomy. Most of their tumors are infratentorial. Now listen, don't get those two confused. Uh, but I know that the answer is to raise the head of the bed at least, if not more than 30 degrees. It's going to be a trick on the NCLEX. What observations are most important for me to make when caring for a patient who is having a seizure? Well, observation of the seizure is seizure is particularly important for patients whose seizure problem is not yet fully diagnosed. It's important to, that the, to realize that the details of the seizure activity can guide the diagnosis, and by guiding the diagnosis, can guide the therapy. It's important for you to observe and record the pre-seizure activity. Did the patient report an aura? aura? Did the patient see external phenomena that instigated the seizure, such as a flashing light, or was the patient hypoxemic before the seizure? It's important to record what part of the body was first affected by the seizure. What areas to which did the seizure progress? Was there a loss of consciousness? What was the nature of the motor activity? Tongue biting, stiffening, jerking, total lack of muscle tone. Was there loss of bowel and bladder control? Uh, it's important to record the duration of the aura, the d duration of the seizure, as well as the duration of the post-ictal post period. It's also important to record what the post-seizure behavior was. Um, what's the patient's level of consciousness, and vital signs, does the patient have a memory loss? Does the patient report muscle soreness? Does the patient present speech disorders that are new or weakness that is new or paralysis that is new? Or does the patient simply sleep like a log and then wake up perfectly fine saying, oh, I guess I had a seizure? Let's pretend you have a patient um, who has a seizure in the hallway outside his room. He falls to the floor before you can stop him. What do you think you should do for him during his seizure? I suppose that if he's right outside his room, we might be tempted to get him out of the hall and into his room. But I think that might not work. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Uh, you don't want to move a patient who's having a seizure. You'll only hurt yourself or the patient. My grandmother always told me to put a spoon in their mouth, but I know that I should not put anything in the mouth of a patient having a seizure. You're absolutely correct there. A patient cannot swallow his tongue, as your grandmother may have told you as his tongue is firmly attached to his jaw. You're more likely to hurt the patient with the spoon than, you are than they are likely to hurt themselves without it. I once saw someone try to restrain the limbs of a person having a seizure, and I know that does not work. Well, since you saw it, you know how, how difficult that is. Um, trying to restrain the patient risks injury to both you, to both of you, and it does no good. Occasionally, you may need to guide the extremities away from striking objects that may be harmful, but trying to immobilize the extremities is not going to work um, and just leads you to getting hurt as well as the patient. I guess that all that I really need to do is place something soft under the patient's head to prevent injury from striking his head on the floor. You're correct again. Patting the head isn't always needed, but it's sometimes helpful. Uh, you can even perhaps just simply sit on the floor and place the patient's head in your lap to use your legs as a pad, but you don't want to let them smack their head against things because they can get, during a seizure, a head injury. It's not common, but it can happen. What causes seizures? Um, seizures are abnormal electrical impulses in the brain. They're frequently a symptom of underlying disease. Diseases such as acidosis, uh, hypo hypoxemia, hypoglycemia, alcohol and barbiturate withdrawal, dehydration, head injury, even remote head injury um, years ago can result in head injury, or a head injury today can frequently manifest promptly with seizures. Um, patients with meningitis or encephalitis, or encephalitis can either seize during their disease or in times following. But probably most of the seizures that we see uh, are epilepsy. 
Epilepsy can be due to birth injury, infection, trauma, brain tumors, or vascular problems such as an arterial vascular malformation or an aneurysm. As with many diseases we've talked about, 75% of epilepsy is idiopathic, which means we have no idea how it came about. Febrile seizures are an interesting problem where, um, due to a rapidly rising fever, a child will have a seizure. Now, as you can well imagine, um, the parents, if this child's been previously well, um, frequently don't tolerate their children seizing very well. Um, fortunately, it's usually not epilepsy. Usually these things are self-limiting, the child's seizure will stop, and after they reach a certain age, they stop having this problem. Um, it seems to be related less to the, the magnitude of the elevation of the fever than it is to the rate of elevation of the fever. In other words, it's not so much how high the fever gets, but how fast it gets where it's going. Um, typically, we simply cool those children and do a lot of teaching with mom and dad. But uh, the good news is, that's not epilepsy. What drugs are used to treat seizures? Well, we've got several different classes of drugs. I'll talk about them as big groups. There's the phenobarbital. The phenobarbital is a representative of the barbiturate group. Um, it, can be, it can have the side effects of sedation, irritability, diplobia, which is double vision, ataxia, difficulty with gait. And the toxic effects uh, can be a skin rash. The point being here, if your patient's a little sedated at the outset, I, we shouldn't be surprised. We'd expect the patient to be a little sedated um, from the beginning of a course of phenobarbital. A little irritability, a little difficulty with gait would not be a surprise. Whereas if the patient breaks out in a skin rash, we probably need to do something. Now, fentoin, on the other hand, presents with visual problems and abnormal hair growth and gingival hyperplasia, which means an abnormal growth of the... Uh, of the uh, gums. Dysrhythmias can be the cause. Um, dysrhythmias can be caused by phenobarbital. Uh, the toxic effects of phenobarbital can be severe skin reactions, peripheral neuropathy, ataxia, and drowsiness, as well as blood dyscrasias. Another group, another drug is uh, carbamazepine, otherwise known as Tegretol. It can present with drowsiness dizziness, unsteadiness, nausea and vomiting, diplobia, mild leukopenia. The severe, effect, the severe effects, the toxic effects, are things like skin rash, blood dyscrasias, and hepatitis. Primidone, or mycelene, has the side effects of lethargy, irritability, diplobia, ataxia, impotence, and the toxic effect of skin rash. The major patient teaching that goes with uh, these medications is the need to take the medications regularly, the need to avoid ingestion of alcohol, the need to keep up their follow-up appointments so that we can track the blood levels of these agents and make sure that they're getting enough of the drug and that the drug is working appropriately and that they're on the right drug. Um, the need to avoid activities that demand alertness, such as operating machinery, until the initial period of sedation has passed. It's also critical that patients know that they should not stop these medications abruptly lest they have seizures due to the withdrawal of the medications. What should I expect to see in a patient who is experiencing the onset of a stroke? Okay, I'm surprised he asked about that without going into the uh, different types of seizures. I think this will be handy for you guys to know. Focal seizures. What are focal seizures? Uh, it's just that. The person will be talking to you and then all of a sudden they'll stop talking for a split second or two and look like they're just staring at you. This is a focal seizure and it can be mistaken for a mental illness or another kind of nerve disorder, but in actuality, it was a focal seizure. Then you have your generalized seizures. These happen when nerve cells on both sides of your brain misfire and they cause muscle spasms. So you'll see the person having this type of seizure. Uh, seizures aren't always an either or thing. Some people have seizures that start as one kind and then become another kind. Uh, so these are called on, unknown onset seizures. Uh, 
generalized seizures, uh, there's six types of generalized seizures. What should I expect to see in a patient who is experiencing the onset of a stroke? That's an important question. Um, stroke is a cerebral vascular accident, um, which can be of a variety of kinds. There can be the ischemic kind where there's an infarct of the brain, which can be due to a, a thrombosis, a, a local clot, or an embolic phenomenon where a clot has come from elsewhere in the body, such as from the uh, atria of the heart during atrial fibrillation. There can be a hemorrhagic stroke where there's a hemorrhage into the brain tissue. Uh, there's an intracerebral bleed uh, into brain tissue or a subarachnoid hemorrhage, usually from a, a leaky aneurysm or a leaky arterial venous malformation. In any case, the presentation is things such as motor deficits of loss of voluntary movements, loss of coordination of movements, impaired swallowing, difficulty with our own with secretions, bladder dysfunction, uh, communication deficits, receptive aphasia, expressive aphasia, dysarthria, labile emotions such as depression, memory losses, perhaps partial loss of vision or loss of specific visual fields. If the CVA is hemorrhagic, the signs and symptoms may include those of increased intracranial pressure. If you think about it, in hemorrhagic stroke, we have bleeding, and the bleeding has got to go someplace. It's trapped inside the brain, and uh, unless the CSF or the intravascular blood volume or the brain itself changes its volume, the pressure inside the skull is going to go up. The presentation of that would be a diminished level of consciousness, hypertension, and bradycardia as well as all those other signs and symptoms we spoke about on the other side of this tape. What diagnostic measures should I expect for the patient with an involving CVA? Well, in addition to a rigorous history and physical examination, we can imagine that the patient will have perhaps CT scanning to localize the intracerebral hemorrhages, to rule out tumor, or rule out a head injury as being the problem. Uh, some patients will get cerebral angiography to localize the source of the hemorrhage. That's necessary before surgery for an aneurysm because we need to know where to go if we're going to try to uh, combat the aneurysm. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.